And we're live with our 170th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Seth and Ken Bitch Session. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, um, we are back uh, to talk all about the things that we haven't gotten to the last few episodes. Um, there's quite a few little articles and things that Ken and I have seen over the past month, two months that we did want to address and did want to bring up. So that's going to be this this very special episode that we have today, the more you know. Um, but in... Um, in other news, on other fronts, uh, we are going to be at LocomocoSec teaching practical secure code review, and both of us really need it. So come to LocomocoSec, um, you know, come sit on the beach with us, have some drinks, and talk secure code review. It's going to be a good time. Uh, and outside of that, there's a couple, there's a couple other uh, trainings that we're looking at. Uh, if anyone has feedback on the DEF CON trainings, like what you think of that format, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are. Uh, DEF CON is going to offer pre paid professional trainings the couple days after the conference. So traditionally, most of the most conferences do training before, but DEF CON doesn't want to step on Black Hat's toes or anything like that. So they're offering them Monday and Tuesday after DEF CON. Uh, Ken and I will be submitting, but I'm interested to hear about interest um, to see, you know, just to gauge what people are thinking about it, you know, whether they're willing to stick around Vegas for another couple of days. I know the DEF CON crowd and Black Hat crowd are a little bit different. I don't know. I mean, Ken, what are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, honestly, after two years of being locked inside, uh, kind of, right? Like, I mean, yeah. yes and no. Uh, loose, loose lockdown, we'll say. Uh, no, I'm excited to go anywhere and, uh, I'm excited for everything. So, so it sounds yeah. awesome to go. Like I'm, I'm definitely stoked to go over to, to Vegas, um, in August and, uh, I'd be down to do DEF CON and, uh, yeah, those are my thoughts. I would say, um, I did want to mention that last week we had the, uh, scaling AppSec Netflix event. Those videos will, um, so here's, here's what I know about the, the, the content, because I've been asked uh, by several people about, you know, like, hey, I wasn't able to, to catch it. Where can I see it? So Netflix has, Netflix security has a YouTube channel and the videos will be released on that channel from my understanding. And, and when they are, I'll obviously uh, put it on our Slack channel. So if you're not, a, and, and likely next week, I'll also post it in the, uh, chat here uh hopefully they're available by, well, available by next week um i also know we're gonna have the raw we being github we'll have access to the raw uh content as well so we may post it um in one of our channels as well um and yeah like i don't know i could talk through a couple of the the highlights if, if you want seth um, but i'm not sure how much um interest there are the things i kind of took away from it at all because um, what I took away might be different from what other people might have taken away from it. So, yeah, yeah, I, sure. uh, we could definitely we could definitely talk through it. I mean, if you want to wait until those videos are open or available, mm -hmm. that's great. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, let's I mean, do that. Let's do that then. The one thing I the only thing I will say is one thing that got me like really. So, like you know, my 
my part of the whole thing was talking about a process that's near and dear to my heart, which is uh, security assessments. And it's very much tied to like security activities and um, the service catalog, which uh, so Philip Turnbull from our security team, he leads the code analysis team. He talked about what our fundamental program looks like in a, in a, in a brief description, very brief description would be the fundamentals program is a way to track on a service based level. Right. So like a service being, I don't know, like GitHub actions, we'll say, right. Something people are familiar with. And that service then has a scorecard and attached to that scorecard is an owning team. And, um, then like, you know, what issues basically are outstanding and, and either positively or negatively impacting their scorecard. So security issues are basically one of those things that get attached to this, this scorecard depending on severity. And then we can kind of track the health essentially of a service. That's that's the high level uh, of that, but the, you should definitely check out Phil's talk because he provides a lot more information. Um, and and, and this, this is where the thing that I thought was really interesting uh, came into play. They talked about a type of modeling and uh, if I can find it, uh, the actual name of the model, but essentially it uses uh, a whole host of signals to sort of create um, like a representation of what risk looks looks like for say a security assessment. So when I say a security assessment, I don't mean like um, a security assessment in the way of, hey, like we're gonna open up this issue and then we're going to track uh, doing like a code review or dynamic testing. That's not what I mean. I mean a security assessment in the sense of like, hey, we're going to build a feature or a new service um, and we want to have some review done by all of the different teams that review these things within the security organization of GitHub. Um, and that's where I'm looking at using this modeling uh, as a way to you know, essentially collect enough signals to, to kind of understand what the risk a service presents and then using that to like determine what additional security activities need to occur, whether a full code review needs to occur, whether, uh, you know, it doesn't, maybe it's, maybe it's doesn't need that. Maybe the risk is very low. Um, so anyways, that's sort of something that's very interesting to me, but I definitely will uh, post more and we can talk about it after, you know, the videos are out and you've had a chance to review them, Seth. Okay. Yeah, I'd be interested to talk through that, especially how much of that is automated, what that process looks like, because that's, I mean, that's a huge thing for most large organizations is just being able to quantify that risk to determine what's appropriate and how they actually go about assessing an application, what's what's required. And I know you guys have solved that um, at some level. So yeah, once those are posted, let's do a deeper dive on that. Um, you know, maybe even if Philip or somebody's willing to come on to talk about it, I know you're intimately familiar as well, but might be good to get other um, takes on it. Um, Monte yeah. Carlo simulation. That's what they mentioned. So I think okay. it was Netflix who uses the Monte Carlo simulation to determine, to model out rather what risk looks like uh, within a service. So, okay. um, and is that, I, I I think I saw that was like Dave King and somebody else from Netflix, correct? Yeah, I, th I think that's correct. Um, I, yeah, that, sounds that, right. that, that, that's crazy to me because I Dave King actually, well, yeah, he was originally from Utah. Like, I'm pretty sure he used to work at Zions Bank when I was there, like you know, on a different, anyway, whatever, right? Like at the bank that I worked at years and years ago, the, the, the community is small. That's all. So. I know. Actually, I was just having that conversation this morning um, because one of the people, 
Uh, I don't want to give too many details away, but we've got a, we've got a, basically there's somebody who's going uh, that we're talking to, and uh, turns out it's a good friend of uh, somebody uh, within um, our GitHub security team. And I was like, oh, cool, yeah, yada yada. We were talking, and then like I mentioned the Netflix event, and then um, the AppSec Council that we're a part of, and all this stuff. And um, he goes, oh yeah, I have a friend who went there. Um, she's a real great engineer, blah, blah, blah. I was like, is it Julia and uh, net? And uh, he's like, yeah, that's exactly who it is. And I'm like, and the second person within like five minutes of that conversation that, and I'm like, this is just the way. And then I was talking to the other folks who were a part of the conversation. I was like, this is just the way it is, man. Like, and, and then I joked that there's like, you know, the whole Tobias, uh, there's dozens of us, dozens of us. Uh, <laughs> there's dozens of us. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just because, like, you know, it's a super small industry. So, yeah, yep. hopefully we're making it a little bit bigger through this podcast. But yeah, yeah. Still very small. So, well, yeah, that'll be good, right? Um, it's always interesting to see how people solve those. And especially the novel solutions, right? Like, hey, let's, let's, let's take some machine learning. Let's take some other indicators and use that to actually guide our process rather than just somebody sitting down and, a spreadsheet saying, huh, I feel like we should do this one. And I don't feel like we should do, you know, whatever, right? Like, you know, the gut feel goes a long way, but at some point you get to a scale where it's very difficult to actually, um, yeah, to actually do that. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. And by the way, I know that the link I just gave is about like <laughs> more about invest, uh, you know, investing investment. and financial bits, but it's, you can take the same thing like uh, basically it even says in like the third bullet point down under key takeaways, a variety of fields utilize these simulations, including finance, engineering, supply chain, and science. So it's, it's obviously they're talking about it in one specific context, but um, Netflix, you know, like I said, I believe that they're using this to ascertain risks of services because they're doing, because it's, it's interesting the way they do things. I think the one thing I admire heavily about Netflix is that they, they are only hands-on when it really makes sense. And they have, they have automated and removed the manual intervention and human element in the sense of when it's not necessary and done a good job of, I think anyways, detecting when it's necessary and when it's not. And like, that's where I see the future state of AppSec being. Cause obviously, even if you have like a ton of AppSec engineers, we're never going to scale. Um, we have a really high, um, so that the traditional, and I was, this was a whole conversation we were having yesterday, the traditional ratio of security engineers to um, sorry, like application or product, no, product security engineers to like actual software engineering is usually one to a hundred, right? Mm -hmm. But we're reaching more of, and like reaching for more like a one in 20 ratio, which is really like, again, that's a really that's good a, ratio. That's a high, yeah. Yeah. And having said that, it's not nearly enough, right? Not, not unless we do more of the things that um, will allow us to just use the human skills where where applicable and only when applicable. So I think that's the world that a lot of us are trying to, to live in. And Netflix is just, you know, super ahead of the curve as usual. Um, yeah. So good for that. Well, and, <laughs> it, 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 it's been interesting because they were the ones that really pioneer, pioneered the paved path idea um, that, Hey, you know, we came up, we got our security engineers together and came up with a, you know, a suggested path for, or a required path for putting out a new service, right? That's basically what it boils down to that already had all the security bells and whistles built into it. And then they're applying that even further 
So they've definitely pushed the envelope, right? And I remember when Jason Chan and a few others were over there. I think Asta's still there as well. So there's, you know, the team is really good at that and for thinking um, and forward thinking. Um, so like, yeah. yeah, it would be. They're yeah. a good I mean, idea would, factory. They are. They are. And, and part of that, you know, to their credit is the engineering org. The management has been very proactive in hiring the people that, that think that way and then also give them the runway to do that. Um, I, you know, I, I, I go back and apply that to like the assessment methodology that we've got. And it, eventually that's what it's got to come down to. We do this mini threat model. We're looking at millions and millions of lines of code. And at some point we have to rely on automation, right? Um, right. Because, because a human's never going to be able to look at all the code that's generated um, from a hundred to one multiplier, right? It's just not possible. Even 20 to one, right? Like that's, it's just not possible. Um, and I know you guys are dealing it with dealing with it on the NPM side as well. Like there, there's just so many of these aspects that the only way to solve it is through some sort of intelligent, intelligently designed system. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I mean, eventually we're going to get there. I, I just don't know how to fit that in and how to automate that from a code perspective and an assessment perspective and have it be very effective. So yeah. Well, I think it, I think it starts with like defining really, you know, really succinct, uh, like set of parameters that, you know, scope down like, Hey, um, here's what we're, here's what we're not interested in and start from there. Honestly, like there's a lot of things where if it, if you don't like, we have a questionnaire and there are definitely questions that if you say no to, it's like, we don't have an interest in, it's not really a big deal to us. And um, I think that, that that's where we, we've sort of been looking at it. And also we define this sort of like, it's not automated yet, right? It's it still requires human intervention at this point, but we have defined, and the reason it does is we're kind of slow rolling out the process first before we worry about the technology. And this is uh, our rapid risk assessment. So this is us saying like, here, you've met the bar for us to at least decide if we're going to do more and, and then what, what we're actually going to do and then like what activities. And then, um, but using that rapid risk assessment as like our, our base baseline for making those decisions. Right. So um, it's, it's helped us sort of further define and limit what we're actually reviewing and only try to review the stuff that's most important. Having said that though, it's like, yeah, I mean, I think as we grow out our team, we're doing more and more in the like building out automation space rather than like, let's just have more eyes reviewing code. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. And there's there's some of that too, that like getting data scientists involved, using something like the mathematical models, the Monte Carlo simulations, right? Like it, it starts to make more sense looking at those indicators of what does a traditionally like secure program look like versus an insecure, you know, program. And if, if there's indicators there that would help bubble that up, I know that there's there's definitely appetite for that, right? And that those are actually some of the areas of research. I think you know this that I've been going in going down is building data models around um, code bases and what code bases look like. What's good good code base? What's what does a malicious code base look like? Can I identify that using you know by training a model an AI model and then having it bubble that up to uh, for human eyes after the fact, because there's, there's usually things that malicious code does, whether that's connections it makes, whether it's trying to obfuscate itself, yada, 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 that a good code, you know, just doesn't try and do. So 
anyway, like there's, there's a lot there that we can unpack. And I know like this wasn't even on our agenda list today. So yeah, <laughs> that's about where we're no, going, but it, yeah, it's, well, that, there's signals. That's super interesting to me. Yeah. Signals. Yep. Go ahead. No, there's, there's, there's signals that I've, I've been thinking more about, like, so, you know, you mentioned Netflix and their paved path, but like, there's definitely uh, in the space of paved paths, there's definitely like some frameworks and some, uh, yeah, some frameworks that I'm more comfortable with um, in terms of them mitigating a specific set of classes of risks. So specifically like cross-site request forgery, um, having the ability to have like, um, uh, non, um, what am I trying to say? Non, um, non-dangerously serialized protocols. Uh, so basically, you know, not using say like Marshall or pickle or something like that for, um, you know, doing some sort of cook, uh, session based. Yeah. <laughs> uh, integrity check basically. Yes, what I'm yeah. trying to say. Um, and then, uh, there, so, and then, and cross-site scripting with like better, you know, templating and template template languages, um, so there's a whole like there's a whole set of and like ORMs that are safer than others. So there's there's these like factors that I would you know say play in there. But also the other signals I think one one that is really interesting and I really want to deep deep dive into at some point is code churn and where what else besides code churn kind of can come together there to to sort of like determine where where risk lies and when and when periodically a re-review with manual eyes makes sense right so like what i mean by that is we typically get like a new feature new service and then we do some review of that but there are certainly there's there's certain thresholds after a certain amount of code churn after a certain amount of signals that we can define come into play where we could then say okay it's time to re-review because the risk is now elevated in this section of our monolith code or in this section of this web service over here or whatever. Right. So anyways, uh, I think it's a highly fascinating subject and I think that's where the future of our team lies, um, in improving how we do our, our work, not necessarily like, Oh, let's just hire more people to do more code review. That's not, it's not tenable, man. It doesn't scale. It sucks. It's not a good approach. Yeah. So we, we, we hire all these I mean, we, sharp minds. Yeah. I want to use them, you know? Yeah. We teach people how to do it. Right. But that's, right. Uh, that's more because we want more eyes on the code, more eyes thinking about the problem. I know there is the tendency that, you know, we're, we're like, Oh, it's an engineering problem. Let's just push left. Right. That's the, you know, Oh, you know, that's the, the, whatever the hot, topic right is we're going to push left and we're just going to push security onto the developers but there's always going to be the need for that secondary check there's always going to be the need for some sort of product security team or application security team that validates what what's coming out of the engineering organizations so as much as you train your developers there's still going to be flaws there's still going to be vulnerabilities that, that like that's not going to completely take care of it and um, the more that we depend on them solely, the more that there is the likelihood that those vulnerabilities are going to explode into that critical risk category. Um, and so I like I keep thinking about that kind of, hey, yeah, yeah, we want to push left. But at the same time, security also has to push right and be able to like automate this and take away the human element and, you know, become more. Uh, I, it's just a maturity uh thing right like when it really comes down to it we've got to become more mature in how we approach these problems and not just hey we're going to throw more eyes on it because throwing more eyes isn't always the best solution 
or the most efficient solution, I, I should say. Yes, it would be awesome if we could if we could audit every single line of code that's out there. It would be awesome. No, and that's but it's not that's like, tenable. Yeah. No, and that's kind of the point. Like, because you mentioned shifting left, and the conversations I was like, ah, oh, shift left. Like, give the developers tools that they can run scans against their own code base before they push. Maybe they uh, have a bit more training, um, and like that's all great and well and fine. But like realistically, some of the or like a lot of the most impactful bugs are literally one line of code wrong. That's it, mm -hmm. one line of code. So you tell me as somebody who's churning out code all the time, like how, even with a ton of training and even with all the knowledge in the world, like how does that actually solve anything by giving people more tools? The scans won't find them. Cause like, obviously not only is it one line of code, but it's also usually something super subtle. A scanner definitely would not have caught most of the time anyways, right? So. You're like saying, oh, push left, put it on the developers, put it on, I don't know, security or give them paved paths and like give them training and all this stuff. And, and the reality is, I think, is what I'm trying to say is, and I think what you're trying to say is these, these bugs are too nuanced and too hard to like, and again, like are typically a one line of code wrong thing. Uh, and the fix is, you know, usually one line of code. Um, it's just, it's too subtle to say that those are the answers where I think, where I think things the the two things that I've seen be the most effective are nice patterns within a, a web framework. It's the best way I can say it is nice patterns, meaning you can use methods that are defined in a way that are like, sort of like how our ORM does it, right? It's abstracting SQL syntax. So you don't have to write all this raw SQL and then introduce vulnerabilities. It's giving you convenience functions. There's, it should be the same for security. If you want to redirect somebody somewhere and you want to do it safely, have a method that just they can use. It's just like inherently secure and hell override the framework if you need to and, and make that, that method secure. I think it's also, this is the, so patterns like being able to inherit from classes or modules and having these patterns available, these methods, these functions available, uh, safe ways of doing things. That's that's one way. But another way, I think, tr truly is to, to get to the point where we really can can pinpoint and say, you just made this change and it's, it, it introduced a significant risk. For what reason? We have to figure that out. But like, I think that that's really the, if you're touching, like, I think there are certain easy wins. Like if you're touching authorization related things, then absolutely that's a higher risk signal right there. If you're even using and 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 enacting one of those uh, authorization related methods that then in and of itself is also again like something that's a huge signal so anyways like uh yeah we're kind of gone on the path here probably <laughs> just going on a tangent at this point but i don't think it i guess what i'm saying is i agree with you i don't think it like it's a shift to left or thing i think it's more of a like no give people the best ways to to use whatever language and framework you're working in and then just have a process for like, hey, and some automation around, hey, this is like high, this is a high risk introduction of something. And like, it yeah. requires either manual intervention or some sort of like, now this is maybe where the shift left comes in, maybe like a security partner that, you know, meaning like a security champion within that team who's like now given a signal, hey, your team just did this thing. These PRs are actually what we consider high risk for this week like go in and take a look. And if you think like call in security and we'll help out and like, yeah, work with you if you need it. I don't know. That's yeah. There's no, no easy I, answer, but like, those are some ones I'm thinking about for answers. Yeah. 
Well, and that's always it, right? There's not an easy answer. And I, I know management wants an easy answer. They want to be able to, oh, well, our all our securities are, or all of our developers are security trained. So we're good, right? Like, oh, we have a bug bounty program in place. We must be good, right? Like there's, you know, and um, I mean, this, this also all goes back. There's this article that was on Krebs. Um, this, this ties into it. So let me post that really quick. Sweet. Uh, where, did, where did I? Uh, I love when when our conversations tie into other things. This is the persistent one. Yes, it's this advanced right. persistent teenagers, right? Um, and this article is specifically he's talking about the lapsus group and the the attacks that they've been running through, right? But right. the 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 issues that I like, or the way that it ties into this is basically it goes back to if you look at the vulnerabilities that lapsus and these advanced this the, these threats are actually taking advantage of dude it's nothing like this intense right like we we talk about like oh we're giving developers right like paved paths we're teaching them about security we're doing x y and z and then you look at the ways that they're actually getting into these organizations that's about you know quarter of the way down that article, targeting oh employees God. at their personal email addresses, offering yeah. to pay twenty grand a week to employees who give up remote access credentials. Right, straight up bribery, uh, bribing, tricking employees at mobile phone stores to hijack a target's phone numbers, targeted attacks. You're not going to do away with this. Social oh. engineering help desk, and intruding on their victims' crisis communication calls post breach. Right, so there's just like. It's not anything that's that, yeah, that list. It's not anything that's that technically um, sophisticated is where I wanted to go with this, right? Like mm-hmm. we struggle, like, and I, and we struggle with the basics of making sure that the, uh, you know, the housekeeping is done from a product security and application security and security uh, you know, in general, like um, the larger, you know, larger community because the new shiny, and I, like, I, I know we've talked about this before, but the new shiny is so much more interesting to us than the basics because we've done the basics. We've dealt with it before. And yet what we're seeing in the wider industry and in breaches in general is that the, the way that organizations are being hacked is not the new shiny. Yes. You know, definitely people were taking advantage of log four shell and some of these other vulnerabilities that have popped up because it was, you know, super easy to execute. But the ways that most of these breaches happen is through the old tried and true, take advantage of the people that are at at an organization, not the technology. It's interesting. They also did this with new hires. That's that's also pretty interesting. So like, you know, because when you when you first start on, what happens? People are throwing like links at you to go change your password. They're giving you new passwords. They're, you know, giving you links to to click on to go and set up your VPN profiles, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like this is the this is actually like when you're the most vulnerable, realistically, when you think about it, like because you're brand new and you're just like, yeah, someone so told me who you don't know anybody either, too. Right. Like you just know, like whoever your points of contact are. Anyways, yeah. I just thought that was an interesting. Um, and I, and, 
Yeah. So yeah. not only like you've got NPM stuff that's going on in the package repository that seems fairly easy to do, but you've got this, you've got people targeting new employees. Uh, like at some point, you know, it's going to come out that like some of these, you know, I mean, if they're willing to pay 20 grand a week for someone's remote credentials, I, I can sure as hell like guarantee that they've they've gotten jobs at sensitive locations or you know as a customer service rep with specific organizations just to leak out this kind of data and get internal access right elevated levels of access you're going to start to see more and more of that pop up because the human element is where the where the breaches happen it's not the technical element we know the technical side of things we know what to watch for but this also feeds back into what do we watch for when we're looking at these applications, when we're looking at people, like what sort of, what are the signals that we have to be aware of to know whether or not we're being breached, whether or not this application is prone to breaches, um, you know? So it, like it, 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 it all kind of feeds together, but it was super interesting to me that the, the level of, you know, non-sophistication that was going on when it came to the attacks, it was just basically being persistent until they made their way in. Um, and I know I'm you're trying, yeah, you're perusing, so yep. Well, I'm trying to figure out why they're calling. Uh, so I guess like because I'm trying to figure out like the teenager aspect of this, you know, the whole advanced persistent teenagers. Um, the only thing I can see here is like the Twitter hack from 2020, which which uh, was a group of teenagers who who had that like crypto scam. Um, yeah. So and I guess this is I guess the point is that. Lapsus is using techniques that were similar to that. And basically because they're basically they're using teen, teenager level tactics or whatever. I think this is just to like, yeah, you know, get people to click on the link or whatever. But, yeah, uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. But like ultimately it's really, okay. Now I understand. It's really just low tech ways of getting into like places with mature cybersecurity practice. I fucking say that with security, <laughs> not cyber security, with security practices. Cyber Computer cyber. security. Yeah, cyber cyber. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. The teenager aspect was not the you know, the interesting thing to me outside of right. Like it seems like you use that as a as a tagline to get people to drop into it. Because I, I mean he's right. Like they're they're non-sophisticated attacks to get into these. And it's more about yeah. being persistent than it is actually being super technical going after people that are in, you know, yeah, are yeah. new to the organization or maybe have been around for a while or susceptible. Um, it, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it doesn't like, that's the thing about social engineering though. It doesn't usually involve too much uh, that, that's super complicated. Right. Like um, in the, in the sense that I'm not saying it's easy and it isn't an art because it absolutely is. But what I am saying is that, it doesn't take like, you know, 17 different O-Day exploits and some crazy like, you know, bot level uh, architecture, like distributed bots, you know, architecture, some some like wild shit, basically, that you would you would assume it would take. It's, it's no, it's like very, you know, click on this link, call this number, give me this. Uh, I just texted you, give, read me the code that just texted you to verify you like stuff like that. So anyways, that's pretty interesting. Well, it, um, I, actually, yeah. actually, it goes hand in hand. There was another one. I don't think we, we <laughs> talked about That's awesome. It. I swear this isn't <laughs> planned, folks. It's just working out like this. This uh, this other article from Robert Heaton, and I know we, we talked about this. He's a, he's a security guy, right? 
Um, and like, you know, he talks about his experience with actually getting like as a, yeah. Damn. Oh yeah. Yeah. Almost yeah. scammed. Right. Yeah, he you're... almost gets, he almost gets yeah. scammed. Right. Yeah. I dropped it in there. And, um, and it's basically because, you know, he just like somebody, um, spoofed the phone number, like coming from his bank, gave him a call, started asking him information about like, Oh, and he was in a situation where he had just like enabled Apple pay or disabled it on a device. So thought it was related to that. And like almost got to the point that he gave him everything. And he's somebody that's supposed to know, you know, know what to do. And I know like you and I get into that situation as well. Like you're dealing with, you know, mortgage companies or your bank or whatever else. And you have a tendency to trust more and give out more information. Yeah. Actually, ironically, uh, it was his cynicism that kind of screwed him uh, in, or almost, almost screwed uh-huh. him. didn't quite. Yeah. But his cynicism being like the cynicism he had for the bank's ability to be competent. Yeah. <laughs> so his assumption was they were just so incompetent. But that's why the, you know, all the odd, like things that should have raised red flags didn't. And, uh, but thankfully, like in the end, well, I don't, spoiler alert, you read the article. We gave it, we gave you the link. You read the article. No, no, but, uh, um, no. So, but yeah, I think that was the interesting part is that, um, just his lack of faith in the institution and then just sort of like, also, I think the, um, the, uh, person was able to just give enough information that it did seem like uh, maybe this is actually legit. And to your point about the Apple pay, it was like, Oh yeah, I did try to add Apple pay or remove Apple and then add it. And they're like, you know, that was a signal that um, they used to sort of indicate their, they knew what was going on with his account. And yeah, anyway, so it's, it's an interesting article, but like, yeah, he almost got scammed. And um, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing. Like, I, I guess what your point is rolling this all in, this is a security person who, you know, themselves and, and definitely not somebody who's like computer illiterate, right? This is someone who's savvy, um, was almost tricked into it. So what hope do, you know, certain, uh, yeah, it, non-savvy it, again, groups of people, uh, and, have. And, it, and it goes back to that trust level, like the, you know, I, I mean, it's typical con man tactics, right? Like, Hey, I, I established some sort of trust. I verify that trust, like in circular reasoning, and then get you to give me, you know, data, money, or whatever based on that trust level that we've already established. And that's that hasn't changed for hundreds, if not thousands, of years from people that try to try to do that sort of thing. And it's just entered into the the cyber realm, Ken. It's entered into the, the cyber, cyber realm. realm. Yeah. <laughs> But I, like, you know, just because somebody works in security doesn't mean that they're not going to get taken advantage of. Just because it's a CFO of a company doesn't mean that they're not going to recognize that or that they are going to recognize it and they're going to be you know, prevented from it. And there's a reason why uh, these bad actors target specific individuals with specific titles, um, you know, get people to click on links, like all that kind of stuff. And it becomes very difficult because as an industry, we teach people like we tell them okay, never give your password away. Don't click on links, but hey, here's a QR code that I'm going to put as a marketing advertisement everywhere. And you should definitely go visit that because it's from, you know, Coinbase, right? Like, you know, uh, they're, they're like, 
we send so many mixed signals to consumers in general <laughs> that it's hard to determine what's going on. And I can guarantee that 98, 99% of the population out there isn't opening those links in a pristine, like protected environment to make sure <laughs> no. that they're like not getting scammed. They're just like, nah. oh, sweet, scanning it with their phone and off they go, right? Um, Your phone yeah. isn't secure? What? It's, I don't get it. <laughs> you don't get it? Explain, explain that to me. <laughs> Mr. Science Man. It's, no, it's I don't Okay. Uh, well, Mr. I've got some Peter code here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's interesting well, for sure. Like he says, you know, to your point, when you put this quote in, it says, you know, we need to design systems that are resilient to them, meaning uh, security engineers. We need to, we need to security engineers and everyone alike, um, yeah. which is actually, you know, it's funny because uh, I will say like Patrick Toomey, who's on our product security engineering team, you know, he's been saying, shouting from the rooftop since I joined GitHub, so probably way before that, that like, it is a ridiculous notion to expect that people are like, that we are going to be able to train people uh, on social engineering, and that should be the way that we prevent them from clicking on links. And instead, we should recognize that they're going to click on those links, it's going to happen. So what do you do then? Like, that's what you should be focused on. What happens once the link is clicked? How do you prevent further exploitation at that point? But like <laughs> this whole notion that you, because like, what does the training tell them too? It's so, so hilarious. It's like, okay, well go to the headers, right? What headers? What is a header? What the fuck is a header, right? Like if you're, if you're Joe Schmo, you're like, what, what are you talking about? And so go click on the headers, go look at the SMTP address. SMT what now? Yeah, Who, who's yeah. the thing? What? Hover over the link without yeah. clicking it. Just don't not even the preview. Hover. Not, yeah, not, not even the preview. Yeah. Hover over it. That gives you like this much of the URL to determine what the, yeah, it's like, come on. This is the best we can do. And how much did that SCORM compliant CBT cost people? It's just horseshit. It's just made up horseshit for companies to pimp products. Like, let's be honest. That's what that is. So anyways. It's not a good approach. I, I'm sure somebody had, I'm sure at one point somebody had the best of intentions and now it's just ridiculous training. And you heard it here, folks. I think it's, it's ridiculous. ridiculous training. Well, and so, I mean, like, it go, yeah, it goes yeah. back to this idea that we, and, and honestly, this is a software engineering principle that I learned in like my computer science classes is you design for failure, right? Yeah. Like every, like you design knowing that things are going to break, shit's going to go wrong. And when it does, you can recover. But we don't seem to do that, right? Like, and, and like, I, I mean, hell, man, I, I know I'm guilty of accidentally clicking on a link because I wasn't paying attention to what the email was as it came in, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Um, Everyone's and, made a mistake. Yeah, and that that's okay. That should be acceptable, rather than like we have a tendency to blame the victim. Like, oh, hell, man, you know, the CFO clicked on a link. What a dumbass! And like, no. Sorry, you don't get to say that, right? Like it's well, it, 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 and yeah. I've seen, I've actually secondhand, secondhand, more than once, just from friends that work in the industry, seen a situation where, and I can think of one major company who I'm not allowed, I'm not going to say the name, but like it's a big tech company where the COO transferred a what you and I would consider a large amount of money, but not they would not, right? That's the job is to sign off and approve constantly on like purchase request essentially um and it was between it was a communication i think between the one the one instance i'm thinking about specifically was like uh like maybe the cfo and coo or ceo and coo something like that 
And it was for like a payout of like, again, a number that would be big to us, but insignificant in terms of daily transactions, the weekly transactions for that company. And uh, they went ahead and approved it, you know, went through the attackers, got their money and they were out the, there was no way to reclaim that. Obviously they'd already done the, tra- uh, done the transfer. The money was taken out. Um, and so they're, you know, it's like, okay, well, who's, who's, uh, whose fault is that? Right. Like it's, the, it looks like all of the same previous um, invoices, essentially, that they've approved before, and it did not trigger any, it wouldn't trigger anything abnormal. So, like, uh, at least in the head of the person who's given the final authorization. So then the question becomes, what's wrong with that system that that was so easy to, do, to, to make that mistake for the end user? So I don't think it's on the end user. I think it's on the, the, the systems. And, and this kind of circles back to that quote there where it says, you know, we need to make them resilient to these types of essentially and, low tech tax. And, and this, we've been dealing with this, like, you know, like in my career, right? Like, you know, going back to the days of, you know, development, but my initial security job at the bank was very much, this was one of the things that they dealt with on a daily basis was, hey, we give businesses access to this wire transfer system. And, you know, you don't protect those credentials and you wire money away and you're a small business. You just wired away 250 K that like, you can't do, you can't cover payroll because you didn't realize it was to the wrong vendor. Whose liability is that? And I know that like, that was a huge issue for the bank at that time because it was, um, is it the system that's inherently insecure or is it the fault of the user for not protecting their passwords, right? Like there were definitely lawyers that got involved because it was like the losses were significant for those businesses. And, um, you know, in some cases, I think the bank paid out. Some cases they made a whole. Other cases they said, no, you were negligent, right? Like it was just this, it, like it was a huge issue. And what happened was they ended up introducing more controls in that process and making sure that, oh, you've got, you know, if you have access to the system and if it's above a certain threshold at that point, like somebody at the bank is giving you a call, there's something else that's actually going on. Um, but finding like, you know, knowing we, and, and this was 15, 20 years ago. So these, I know the system isn't in place anymore, but, you know, finding flaws in that, in that wire transfer system. And all of a sudden I'm on the phone with lawyers because they're, they're having to introduce new like wire transfer protocols because you can't guarantee that the person that requested the transfer is the person from the organization that it should be like that has like significant impact on how they like the, the, the bank does business with those customers, right? Having to call every single person that's making a wire transfer. Yeah. The wire, you know, the wire system, like that wire division did not like us for a good six months until they introduced new stuff because we're like, guys, you can't like, you can't claim that this person is who they say they are because of X, Y, and Z, right? The flaws that are in that system. So. Yeah. Well, think about AWS, right? Like AWS had this huge issue, right? This is circa 2013, 2014, where, um, keys were being committed to places like GitHub and those keys once leaked resulted in like, you know, Bitcoin mining, um, using the basically huge bills for, for AWS, uh, users. Right. But not just the users, because it's actually AWS who ends up most of the time having to sort of say like, okay, well you were breached. And so like, we'll take that back. That's in most cases, they didn't actually, you know, 
or in a lot of cases, they didn't actually pass that bill on. They did initially, but then they you know brought it back, and the bill was really what I'm trying to say is AWS was stuck with the bill for the energy costs for the for the usage, right? So what did they do? Did they sit there and, and blame you know the uh, the users for committing their credentials accidentally? Did they um, sit there and bring out the pitchforks for people that con- configured their S3 buckets incorrectly? Um, for people that were using their root account logins instead of like creating proper like second accounts with MFA and or like secondary accounts. Sorry, I mean like regular user accounts with MFA as well as service level accounts used by the different services within Amazon for specific things with specific access and policies attached to them. No, they went and they did, they worked with companies like GitHub to you know say hey you committed your credentials well boom we're gonna re- we're gonna have those revoked if they ever get accidentally committed. Hey, we're going to give you alerts that your buckets and your IAM and your this and your that are not configured super, you know, super well. That you've got some security issues. We're going to get better detection and prevention. Um, they they did everything they could to to really take that burden on themselves and try to reduce, you know, folks from from having those like expenditures. And uh, this isn't to say like, oh, look at AWS and how great they are. This is just this is the right way I think to to take on these approaches. It's not they didn't sit there and. It doesn't make sense to sit there and just blame the user, right? Like, or the or the people leveraging your your systems. It makes sense to make your systems more resilient. Yep, yep, it does, right? Like, it, it you know, plan for failure, right? That's it, like the the whole idea of business continuity planning and like disaster recovery planning is making sure that when shit hits the fan, you're able to recover in a reasonable manner, right? Rather than the 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 business completely going under and by the our way systems yeah what? oh go ahead sorry no i didn't, i lost you for a second sorry oh nope nope you're fine and the um yeah and, and like the systems that we design have just got to do that right like whether that is um you know us actually doing some sort of a code review or whatever right like from a product security perspective the stuff that we put in place for security engineers whether it's security compliance and we're talking about social engineering um you know, what happens when someone gets access to somebody else's account, because it's inevitably going to happen. Um, Whether that is an engineering problem or whether it's a, you know, somebody gave their password away, whether it's, you know, the, the APTs, the the persistent threat of somebody acts, you know, paying someone for that access there, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's a matter of if not when, or a matter Mm -hmm. of when, not if, sorry, I said that backwards. What were you going to say? Oh, no, I, I wanted to make sure. Is my connection um, okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, yeah, you're fine. Okay, cool. I had a couple of spots where uh, you were in and out, so I just want to make sure it's all okay. good. Yeah. No, so, um, yeah, I, I think, like, you've pretty much summarized that pretty well. Um, okay. Plan for, <laughs> plan for failure, the name of my autobiography. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, okay. And this actually fits with this other one that I brought up. Oh my God, really? <laughs> We're just on a roll today. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Web3 is going great, right? It's just basically a list <laughs> of, of failures, right? Like in right, the Web3 we space, right? Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm putting it into Slack right now and um, I can put it into YouTube as well if you haven't. Oh, you already did. Cool. Right. I dropped it there. Yeah. Um, and this isn't to say that Web3 is like the worst thing ever, but it's just basically a website that's, that's, uh, yeah, 
tracking the failures, like the number of breaches and, you know, th there's a couple things in there that are okay. Right. That aren't necessarily the worst, but there's like, I, I mean, if you start looking at the amount of like, Oh, 13.4 million dollars of they've lost there, there's 80 million that's been stolen from this other, like, um, and I would be surprised if a lot of this doesn't go back to those basics that we're talking about, right? Whether it's the trust that we're giving people, not understanding the risks that we're taking on in the Web3 space, um, especially as large organizations dump millions and millions, if not billions of dollars into this. It's, it's... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I just read this. It said the Central African Republic became the secondary or sorry, the second country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. So I was like, wow, that's weird. Why would that be a failure, right? And then it goes on to say, in a country where only 4% of people have internet access. <laughs> yes. And I'm only <laughs> laughing because like, I didn't, you know, I was like, well, why is that like, you know, legal tender being Bitcoin? Like, why is that a failure? But then the 4% internet access, I didn't put that together. That's pretty interesting. Um yeah. And, Anyways. I, I, and so like, and I don't think like Web3 is extremely immature right now, right? Like just from a, a protection perspective and just, and an understanding perspective of the risks that are associated with it. So yeah. yeah. Adopting Bitcoin without guidance from the BAC. BEAC was a serious offense. Interesting. Man. Yeah. But There's you know a, what's wild is to what? see like these silly names and these like kind of silly logos and all these like you know essentially ridiculous almost like tech bro kind of terms and then see like a hundred million or 14 million or 350 million or whatever like you know dollars like stolen uh type fraud activities and then to see like some weird picture of, you know, I don't know, like Ninja, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, literally, like as <laughs> yeah. the NFT. And it's just like hilarious. Like, like what world are we living in anymore? It's, it's crazy. But that's crypto. Uh, yeah, no, it is, right? Like, and things like there's this AccuDreams NFT project. They built a, you know, a bug. Oh, well, they built a, a smart contract that did the minting process. And then... Yeah, fail to account for users minting multiple N NFTs in a single transaction, which means that they, you know, there's like $34 million that was used to mint that they'll never, never be able to retrieve, right? Stuff like that just as I'm like, oh my word, guys, right? Like you're just, <laughs> let's this just one, burn money, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> this one says FTX founder, Sam Bankman fried tries to explain yield farming and it's just a Ponzi scheme. And it just reminds me of like in the office, that episode where Michael S Scott's like, it's not a pyramid scheme. And then he just said like, draws just a puts pyramid. Other, like he draws a pyramid and connects it. <laughs> and then Michael Scott's just like, Oh shit. Oh, that's amazing. That's exactly what it reads. Like yeah. it's just, how is, how is this like? So sophomore ish and it's like we're talking on the scale of hundreds of millions of dollars i just it blows my mind honestly I, I i i think it goes back to the fact that bitcoin like the the astronomical rise of bitcoin um yeah and like you know and and there's certain like if you've ever looked at bitcoin code which you know i have had the ability to do over the last you know few months um 
but like it's extremely well engineered like the guys the engineers that went and put their time into it did a good job and they like the, the checks and you know everything else that's in there you know bitcoin you know seems like a legit way to actually you know handle a blockchain and cryptocurrency on top of that but we have all these people that have for- because it's open source they fork it they add things to it they don't understand the implications they're trying to make a quick buck because they're seeing the way the rise of this and thinking man if i create a cryptocurrency now it's just going to go up and up and up and um eventually i'm going to get my money back out like tenfold hundredfold thousandfold and so that you know I, I really think this goes back to the fact that people are greedy and, you know, it's human nature, right. To be able to, to think like, Oh, I can be a billionaire. If I just invest this little bit of time in this, like this thing that my cousin's boyfriend told me about um, that he's working on and he's seen. So, yeah. Sorry. I think I've got some sawing going on in the background. So uh, I'm just, oh, you're fine. Yeah. Hopefully it's not yeah. too loud. No. But uh, I'm not hearing it come through. So, cool, perfect. Anyway, entertaining. Yeah, yeah. It's a wild space, and like uh, I I was reading, you know, sort of the finance aspect of it yesterday, just because I was kind of curious. And uh, investors are pretty um, with they're pretty reticent to to uh, advise that you 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 basically place much even just 1% of your, your income is, is probably safe, but more than that is really, I, I'm, you'd be hard pressed to find a seasoned investment company and seasoned investors that, uh, you know, find it a good idea to put, you know, like tons. And, and the reason I say that is apparently there, there are folks putting their entire 401k savings like towards crypto, which is like, man, what a dangerous precedent. That's way too much. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not like, I will say this when Rob, I think I've mentioned this before when Rob Fuller had was like, Hey man, you should buy Bitcoin when it was like 2010 and just started. And I could have bought like all the pig coins in the world for like oh, for, nothing less yeah, than a penny yeah. fractions of a penny. Yeah. Like I definitely missed the boat there and feel yeah. like an idiot, but, uh, so maybe don't listen to me for your fun, but it is interesting to see that people are, are sort of like, uh, that bearish on that and pretty skittish of putting too much into the, you know, into your, uh, of your savings into the crypto. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime you put all your eggs in one basket, right. The risk, risk versus reward calculation. Um, yeah. Yeah. It goes, yeah. goes way up. Cause what happens if you buy and it ends up being a peak and then crashes and you, know, you mm-hmm. need, yeah, it depends on when you need, when you need to have that income. So, but for sure. Right. Like I'm a, I'm a little more risk adverse than that, you know, just, Oh yeah. Me too. You know, Same. But, yeah. Um, I didn't really, I don't know if you really want to get into it um, because this is going to take a bit of an explanation because um, I, I was going to bring up like the, um, I think it's a real fun walkthrough, right? Like I think it's a really fun walkthrough to, and it may be something that we just do not even maybe an extra like little snippet. I don't know uh, of okay. like an extension of absolute absolute where it's, we walk through the, the rails gadget, bit and like oh, using yeah. meta pro- abusing metaprogramming realistically to uh, have remote code execution. I think I need some like dedicated time because I need to show people in a terminal what it looks like with Ruby, like basically what object, what, what it looks like to metaprogram in, in Ruby in an interactive Ruby 
um, like our IRB, like in a con interactive console and showing what actually like, how do you, how do you take a string and make it a class like on the fly? How do you take a method and define it on the fly using right. just like yeah. strings or symbols as input? Um, and then once that, that is laid down as a basis, I think then it's okay to kind of further explain their article. But I think it needs a little bit of prefix and uh, some time spent with the, the basics before we actually dive into what they did. And then, yeah. and then when you read that code, you'll understand what like send does. And you'll understand what like why they're calling and, and how they're, how they're invoking a, uh, like a three chained ancestry class to create code on the fly and then use that code to like perform remote code execution. So yeah. anyways, like, I don't know if we do it next week or if we just do it out of band. I do have my setup ready also for after dark. Like my office is finally in a place where uh, okay, I got all the cool lighting and all that stuff finally uh, as of this over this weekend. So like I'm ready for, I'm fully ready for more after dark, after dark. continuation Sweet. of our last vault warden yes. episode. Yes. Well, maybe, yeah, it would be good to dig into both of those things. Right. Like I, I think you're right on the Ruby metaprogramming because there, there is quite a bit of background and I, you know, I'm I'm not going to assume that most of the people that listen to the podcast are, are metaprogramming experts or understand what like outside of maybe what that actually means, um, how that actually works with Ruby. So it'd be good to do, um, maybe we'll just do a five or 10 minute explanation video and then do a, you know, a walkthrough on it um, as we get some time. You and I can work that out though. So watch for that as well as upcoming after dark episodes, because I do want to dig back into that continue on. Um, and there was some more stuff from hunter.dev. I know they've expanded out payouts and there's been some interesting vulnerabilities that popped up there as well. Um, some interest, interesting vulnerabilities and fixes. Um, so like that integration and dealing with those guys will be, you know, fun as well. So watch for it. It's coming. I think we've, you know, we've probably talked about enough for today, Ken. Yeah, um, for sure. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but otherwise we do have Jimmy Mest is going to come back on the podcast in a couple of weeks, I think on the 17th. Right. So we'll have him um, talk about all things Kubernetes and whatever else he's been doing recently. I haven't necessarily followed it, so it'd be good to catch up with him as well. And yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any other announcements outside of that. So we can probably call it for today unless you have something else. Uh, no, that's awesome. I didn't actually... Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Jimmy because I didn't see that. So I'm actually going to set up that. Uh, I'll set up that StreamYard encounter invite and all that stuff. So cool. Cool, man. We'll talk cool. more. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining today. As always, if you want to continue the conversation, please join us on Slack. Our um, Slack is open. It's on the website, episodeappsec.com. Love to have you and you know continue talking about what a dumpster fire web three is. I know Ken Toller's in the Slack channel right now know talking about it so yeah oh and we got some behind the scenes kernel con video editing oh, yes we do. Uh, short we thing that's coming up. up so uh yeah. stay tuned for that it's just like yes. kind of like a little little peek sneak preview of what we what goes on behind the scenes when we do these trainings so yeah. and and we'll probably do the same uh, or something similar when it comes to loco moco i really really want people to who who are unable to experience it in person. I want you to kind of get a vibe for what it's like. And then that way in future um, iterations, maybe uh, it'll inspire you to um, attend or maybe, uh, yeah, maybe it's just something you're interested in. So, all right, cool. Cool. All right. Thanks everybody. We'll see, see y'all next week.